Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today it's part one of the Gospel of John, chapter 19. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. This is the absolute darkest week of the entire 33-year-old life of Jesus Christ. This is it. This is the cosmic showdown between good and evil, between light and darkness. As you recall, when Adam and Eve got banished from paradise and they're sent away from the Trinity, there's somebody on the other side. He's there waiting for them. He's on the side they are on now. That's where they're going, away from the Trinity and to his world. And his world is called the kingdom of darkness, and Satan resides there as prince. Jesus' world is the kingdom of light, and he is the prince and ultimately the king of kings. Now, when we started John's gospel, we had this beautiful prologue, and he tells us that what has come into being in him was life, and that life was the light of all people, and that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Jesus said in John 8, I am the light of the world. You know, when God spoke the word, God said, let there be light. The word is Jesus Christ. Let there be light. And Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus wins this cosmic battle and he wins access for us. He's the way for us to get back into this kingdom of light by crushing the head of the prince of the world, Satan, the prince of darkness, Satan. He is the prince of light. So, but the problem is we still got to live here. So we still live in this dark world and you can flip on the news at any moment and you'll hear the first minute you turn it on about cyber attacks, identity theft, military conflicts, racial tensions, escalating violence in the inner city, gender wars, rampant pornography, environmental disasters, immorality, gender confusion, growing political anxiety. And that's just the first three minutes of the news. So we still live in this world of darkness, right? Do you notice it all around you, this culture of darkness, this culture of death? And he has come to win for us a kingdom of light. So the church is the light of Christ on earth. We, his bride, become the light to the world. And this church is here to heal and restore humanity with the light, the pure light of Christ. That pure light shines in and refracts into these beautiful sacraments offered by the church in their healing. And Benedict tells us the real problem at this moment of our history is that God is disappearing from the human horizon. And with the dimming of the light which comes from God, humanity is losing its bearings with increasingly evident destructive effects. Benedict continues, in our days when in vast areas of the world the faith is in danger of dying out like a flame which no longer has fuel, The overriding priority is to make God present in this world and to show men and women the way to God. So humanity is pushing this light away. We're pushing God away. And you need fuel for the light of Christ so that it won't be diminished. Uh, The fuel here is gas for our stoves. Faith is in danger of dying out like a flame which no longer has fuel. 
the fuel is the Holy Spirit. We got to keep him alive. We got to live by the spirit, not the flesh. We can't give in to the darkness. When we don't use this fuel, the Holy Spirit, our flame grows dim. I have a burner on my stove that won't work right now because it's all dirty and clogged up and the, the fuel, the gas is not getting through. It's diminished and it won't light. <laughs> we don't want to be like that. We got to let that fuel, that Holy Spirit get through us so we can light the world. When we don't have this light, we start walking in darkness, instability, confusion, unrest, rage, anxiety, fear. They all increase when the light goes down. Because as the light decreases, we lose our bearings and we walk in the dark. So we're groping around like people with blindfolds, pitch blackness. But Jesus came and defeated the dark. He has conquered the dark. Paul tells the Colossians, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them. So he's done it. He's the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, the light. He's the way back from the dark side to the light side. He wants to take us from the dark back into the light of the Trinity, the beatific vision. And it starts here with the fuel of the Holy Spirit being the light to the world. John 12, believe in the light so that you may become children of the light. Paul to the Ephesians, once you were in darkness, but now in the Lord, you are light. Live as children of the light. To the Thessalonians, Paul says, you are all children of the light and children of the day, not of the night or darkness anymore. So Jesus is the light of the world. The Holy Spirit is that living God that becomes this abundant new fuel source for us to fill us so we can shine this light of Christ to the world. And Jesus said, let your light shine. The righteous ones will live by faith. Now, are we willing to let his light shine through us? Satan likes to suppress the truth. He likes to suppress and cover the light. He hates light. He's like a cockroach. He runs. Romans 1 tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. Satan loves the truth suppressed. Loves it. Delights in it. And Pilate stood before Jesus in John 18 and said, What is truth? And he's looking right at him. And he says, what is truth? And Jesus had told us in John 14, I'm the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So looking at truth and light square on right in the eye, Pilate sided with deception and darkness. How many of us looking at truth and light right in the eye, we know Jesus. How many of us side with darkness? Or at least side with silence, like Peter did three times. I don't even know the man. Don't ask me. I, I, I don't know him. I do not know the man. You know truth. But do you ever say, well, I, I, I don't really have an opinion on that. I haven't researched it. I haven't studied it. I don't know. You know truth, but do you ever say, well, it's not for me to say. I mean, each to his own. Who am I to judge? You know truth, but do you ever say, I, I, I don't really know enough to comment on that. I'll leave that to you too. Truth can make us squirm. But truth sets us free always, always, always. Jesus says you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. That's one of his promises. You want true happiness, you gotta live in the light. You gotta follow his commands, it's a gift. Or we cannot fear truth. Paul tells the Romans, though they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and senseless. Their minds were senseless and darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory, glory, the Shekinah glory, the light of the immortal God for images, for idols. Truth. What is truth? Truth has come into the world. And truth has shown us the light. And truth has made himself known to us. Do we want truth? Do you want truth? We're here seeking it. Do we want the claim that truth will make on us? Because if you know truth, it's going to make a claim on your life. Do we want what truth demands? Because it demands us to submit to it as truth, as authoritative, as loving. (laughs) Truth would have to become the Lord of my life if I submit to it. It's going to have to be the Lord of my life. It's going to have to rule all areas of my life if I submit to it. Everything. Uh, I don't know about that. I mean, there are a few little things I kind of enjoy that I really don't want truth messing with. Like, I love reading People magazine when I get my hair done. (laughs) It's full of gossip and lies, you know? It's not truth. Truth would have to be the Lord of my life. Like, I can't watch Bachelorette anymore. That's not truth. 23 women dating one man. (laughs) I would have to admit that I'm a mere creature. Just a creature, just, just a creature. And I would have to admit that I'm not the master of my own destiny or my kid's destiny, <laughs> that I'm not in control of someone else's. I would have to admit that I'm not the captain of my own ship. I would have to admit I'm not my own trinity, my own unholy trinity of me, myself, and I, as I, just a minute, I gotta check my iPhone, because I've got, oh wait, in my iPad, and my iPod, and my iPhone, I, 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 I. Romans 1 goes on to explain this. If truth is suppressed, we will eventually go against our own nature. If God's truth is hidden, and if it's not acknowledged, then all sorts of immoral and perverse behaviors will follow things that go against our own nature. We see that all around us. If the truth is suppressed, we go against our own nature, we start believing all sorts of lies. And we become children, not of God. We have a different father, a father of lies. And we don't want him as our father. The father of lies was alive and well at the time of Jesus. Jesus was betrayed first by Judas then bound. They bound God and took him to Annas, the high priest, and then on to Caiaphas, and then on to Pilate, because people did not want to deal with the truth. Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? Tonight, Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Brutal flogging was normal before any crucifixion in the days of the Messiah, except in the case of mass crucifixions, when there was a great number of people to be killed that day, and there was no time for flogging. During the rebellion of the Jews under Roman tyranny, after 66 AD, before total expulsion from the Holy Land, there were many, many, many crucifixion of Jews. Hundreds per day, including men, women, and children, were crucified. A public spectacle. This could be you. If you do what they did, this will be you hanging here. So they wanted people to walk by and see as the ravens would pluck out their eyes. After centuries of practicing crucifixion, a torture and execution method common to Rome, Emperor Constantine abolished crucifixion in 337 AD. But that's 300 years after Jesus. 
It was motivated by his love and veneration of Jesus Christ. What a flogging was before a crucifixion, there was a tool called a flagrum. It's a whip with a short handle, two or three leather thongs, and each of them had on their end heavy lead balls or mutton balls. Those are balls of bone with sharp shards on the ends. The number of lashes of flagging in Hebrew law, it was very strict. No more than 40 lashes. You find that in Deuteronomy 25, 40 lashes may be given, but no more. If more lashes than these are given, your neighbor will be degraded in your sight. So the Jews were strict and people could be flogged for punishment, but no more than 40. So they always did 39 because they lived with fences around the law and they never wanted to go over 40. So we'll just do 39. So they always stopped at 39. And in a way, that's dignity of the human person in a way, because when you go over 40, people start being degraded and they lose their bowel, they lose their bladder control, they, they lose, it is just very degrading. Paul was flogged five times, he tells us in 2 Corinthians, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. So five times he was flogged, 39 times. Now the Romans had no limit to the number of lashes. They didn't have any rule. And so they could do as many as they wanted. They always wanted enough strength left to the, the person being crucified that they would be able to carry their own cross because they certainly didn't want to carry that heavy cross for them. And so they could do as many lashes as they wanted. Roman proconsul Pontius Pilate condemned Jesus to flogging. So the number of lashes would be unlimited. No care given to the dignity of the human person. The flogging must have been severe because all the synoptics tell us that afterward he could not carry that cross without the assistance of a certain Simon of Cyrene. The Shroud of Turin identifies over 100 lash marks at least on the cloth. The whip in action cut the skin, the balls and bones created deep contusions in the victim and the result was hemorrhaging and considerable weakening of vital resistance to the victim. A lot of times people condemned to flogging would die just in the flogging stage alone. Loss of blood from flagellation and injuries could lead to hypovolemic shock and on a cold day people could get hypothermia. The position of the body during the crucifixion produced a gradual, slow, painful death. The cause of death would be asphyxiation or suffocation because the diaphragm and the intercostal muscles that help us breathe become weak and exhausted and collapse and the person is asphyxiated. Breaking the legs was very common to accelerate the dying. They didn't have all day these soldiers. Let's get this done. The weakening from the flogging shortened the agony time on the cross most generally. The victims were tied to columns to be flogged or pillars with their hands above their heads. Lash wounds were less on their forearms and arms. The back and torso and legs took the greatest extent. Now, have no doubt, my friends, that Romans 5 is true when it says, blood was shed that you might have life. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they dressed him in a purple robe and they kept coming up to him saying, hail, king of the Jews, hail, king of the Jews and striking him on the face, hail, hail, king of the Jews. Pilate went out again and said to them, look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no case against him, none, innocent. <laughs> I find no case against this man. Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, declared Jesus an innocent man. We know Pilate is a real person. He is in the history books, no doubt. Uh, this is a Pilate stone with the inscription. It's in the Israeli Museum in Jerusalem. But Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea,
was found with his name on it. We say his name at every mass. When we say the Nicene Creed, we will never forget Pontius Pilate. For our sake, Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. This is an absolute real historical event. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe and Pilate said to them, here is the man. Here is the man. Here is the man. In Latin, ecce homo. He has a dual nature. Here is the man. He's fully man and he's fully God. And they don't get it. If you go to Jerusalem and walk the Via Della Rosa, you will go past this ecce homo arch right where Pilate said this. It's now a basilica, a Catholic basilica, a convent of the Sisters of Zion, but it's one of the stops on the Via Della Rosa, the Way of the Cross. When the chief priests and the police saw him, they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Chief priests, authorities of Jewish Torah, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no case against him. None. And Pilate washed his hands of the matter. Now that is a Hebrew idiom, to wash one's hands of something. To accept no responsibility for this, to refuse responsibility, to abandon, to renounce. He washes his hands of this innocent man's blood and execution. We know from Matthew 27 that while Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him. She said, have nothing to do with this innocent man. For today I have suffered a great deal because of a dream I had about him. Now, a very interesting story. Anne Catherine Emmerich was born on the feast of Mary's nativity, September 8th. She was born in 1774 in Germany. She became a German Augustinian nun. She is also a mystic and she has the stigmata. She had the stigmata, the wounds of Christ. Okay, and according to biographers, the last 12 years of her life, she ate nothing but Eucharistic food. That's all she ate for 12 years. She had incredible visions and private revelations. And her visions she wrote down and her writings led right to the house of the Virgin Mary in Ephesus, Turkey. She had never ever been there, but from what she wrote, they followed her writings and found it, excavated it, boom, there it was exactly as she said. She was named blessed by John Paul II, Saint John Paul II. Now what's interesting is that Mel Gibson purchased a library of hundreds of books from a convent that was closing down. And he was going through the books and he was reaching for a library book on the shelf and he said in his own words that some supernatural intervention happened another book to fall and drop right into his hands. And he opened up the book and it was by this woman. He credits his movie and the inspiration for his movie of The Passion of the Christ to the Gospel of John and to Anne Catherine Emmerich, Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich and her writings. The book that fell into his hands was called The Dolores Passion of Our Lord Jesus Christ. I just ordered a, to read for Lent. They said it's a great Lenten read. These are her private revelations. Mel claims that the book opened up a whole new world for him of amazing images. And he said that she supplied me with stuff that I never, ever would have thought of when he was doing this movie. And I'm going to give you an example of an excerpt from the book that Mel Gibson used in his movie, The Passion. And it's this. It's from the writing of Anne Catherine Emmerich. When Jesus fell down at the foot of the pillar after the flagellation, I saw Claudia Procula, the wife of Pilate, send some large pieces of linen to the mother of God. 
I know not whether she thought that Jesus would be set free and that his mother would then require linen to dress his wounds or whether this compassionate lady was aware of the use which would be made of her present, her gift. I soon after saw Mary and Magdalene approach the pillar where Jesus had been scourged. They knelt down on the ground near the pillar and they wiped up the sacred blood with the linen which Claudia Procula had sent. Now, Mel Gibson used that scene in The Passion, but Procula became a saint. She is Saint Claudia Procula. She is the wife of Pontius Pilate. She is the only woman in the Bible that had a dream. All the other dreams we read about are from men. If you find another woman one, let me know. But she's the only woman in the Bible that had a dream, and the dream is the only one that we know of that concerns the end of the life of Christ. And it was a disturbing dream, more like a nightmare, a very disturbing dream. And she had the courage to send word to her husband, which in those days in a patriarchic society, when he's the governor, the Roman governor, she knew she had to get word to him. And so she was brave enough, full of courage, and she went to her husband, who was under so much pressure to keep Pax Romana, to keep peace for Rome at this time. You have increase in population at Passover time from Jews coming from all over the known world, and he is to keep peace, and this riot is starting up. And she goes to him and says, he's innocent, have nothing to do with this man. Later in Christian tradition, she's known as St. Procula or St. Claudia, Procula. And Paul mentions her to Timothy when he says, do your best to come before winter. Eubulius sends greetings to you as do Pudens. We know that's Senator, a Roman Senator, Pudens, and Linus and Claudia, Pilate's wife, and all the brothers and sisters. Eusebius, the great historian, writes that Pilate committed suicide under Emperor Caligula three years after the death of Jesus Christ. Eusebius writes that Pilate was forced to become his own murderer and executioner and thus divine vengeance. (laughs) Some scholars disagree with that, but Eusebius does record that. Uh, It was a self-inflicted knife. Early scripture commentaries note that Pilate knew Christ was innocent, but he caved into popular opinion, careerism, and peer pressure. The Abyssinian and Greek Orthodox churches consider his wife a saint, Saint Claudia Procula, and celebrate her feast day on October 27th. Now, the Jews answer Pilate, we have a law, and according to that law, Jesus ought to die because he has claimed to be the son of God. Now, for the Jews, that is sheer blasphemy. The charge for his death is blasphemy. And Pilate therefore said to Jesus, do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have the power to release you and I have the power to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no power over me unless it had been given to you from above. And therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Jesus says the ones who handed him over to Pilate are guilty of a greater sin. And who would that be? Who is it that handed Jesus over to Pilate? The first one was Judas, one of his own. The second one, the high priest Annas, the original high priest. Then he hands him over to Caiaphas, the pseudo high priest that had been assigned by Rome. From then on, Pilate tried to release Jesus, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are no friend of the emperor. Everyone who claims to be a king sets himself against the emperor. Pilate entered his headquarters again and asked Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer, silencio. And when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside and Pilate sat down on the judge's bench. 
at a place called the Stone Pavement, or in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, I'm going to be giving you some irony alerts, because John is a master at using irony. He's ironic. This is what irony is, a state of affairs or an event that seems deliberately contrary to what one expects and is often amusing as a result. Also, a literary technique originally used in Greek tragedies by which the full significance of a character's words or actions are clear to the audience or reader, although unknown to the character. So John's going to use some very dramatic irony here. Jesus is the judge, okay, and he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. So the judge of all the world is being judged by a man. Pilate sits down on a judgment seat to judge God. He sits down to judge the Lord of the universe, to judge truth himself. Later, Jesus will sit down at the right hand of the Father on his mercy seat cover, and he will judge Pilate, and he will judge each and every single one of us as well. And it's his word that's the judge. His word is true. You're studying his word. That's what judges us. Did we do what it said or not? Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about noon. And he said to the Jews, here is your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate asked them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. The chief priest said, we have no king but the emperor, Caesar Tiberius. Irony alert, okay. This is total irony because it absolutely goes against the first commandment of the Jews that God gave them in Exodus chapter 20 when it was the top commandment and God used the most verbiage to tell them, but you will have no other gods, no other kings, no other husbands before me. I am the Lord your God. You shall not bow down to them. You shall not worship them. We have no king but the emperor Tiberius Caesar. That was the fastest growing religion in the Roman Empire, the imperial deity. Every emperor was a god, starting with Julius Caesar, posthumously named God. His son was son of God, prince of peace, bring Pax Romana to Rome. So on and on, every emperor became a god, a god, a god, a god. And they're saying, we have no god but this god, Caesar. Caesar Tiberius, the Roman emperor from 14 to 37 AD, a member of the imperial deity, a self-proclaimed god, They have broken the first commandment, the chief priests, the authorities, the high up Jews. They're saying Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. He's 100% innocent. He is the son of God. He's just telling the truth. They're 100% guilty of worshiping false gods like Caesar Tiberius. Then Pilate handed him over to be crucified. And they took Jesus and carrying the cross by himself. That's interesting. Because the synoptics all have him with Simon of Cyrene at some point. And in John, it says by himself, at least the start of the Via Della Rosa. The fifth station of our stations of the cross is Simon of Cyrene helping Jesus to carry his cross, as mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They took Jesus and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Now, people will try to show you some mountain that looks like a skull, and you're like, "Uh uh-huh, I see it, yeah, uh, no. Uh, And and 2,000 years ago, yeah, I see the skull. No, that's not it. The place of the skull is called Golgotha. Today, a Catholic church has been built over this site. It's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and Golgotha, the rock, 
is in there and the tomb of Christ. That was part one of the Gospel of John, chapter 19, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.